Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by Policy Forum. I'm Chris Farnham from the National Security College at the ANU, and this is the first of a series of podcasts where we have the ambitious goal of tackling Australia's national security challenges and peering out into the region. We aim to bring you discussion and analysis on national security once a fortnight, where we will be going from the largest strategic issues all the way down to the tactical nitty-gritty. And when a crisis breaks, we will be speaking with experts to try and bring you some clarity from the complexity as events unfold. We're really keen to talk to you on these issues. Uh, We'd like to hear your comments on what we discuss. We'd like to take your questions. And we're also keen to know what you would like to hear from us and the issues you'd like to hear us discuss. You can get in touch with us at podcast at policyforum.net on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, on Facebook at Asia Pacific Policy Society, and if my boss Rory Medcalf has any say in it, that's very soon to become Indo-Pacific Policy Society. And that's exactly who we're going to be talking to today, Professor Rory Medcalf. And we are going to be asking, what is in a name? We're going to be looking at a small term for a big concept. We're talking about the Indo-Pacific concept. This is an issue or a concept, a regional concept that has really taken a flight recently and most notably at last weekend's Shangri-La Dialogue. We have regional countries such as Australia, Indonesia and India looking at the Indo-Pacific concept and adopting that in their strategic policies and their planning. But we also have extra regional powers such as the US, such as China and France all taking on some kind of Indo-Pacific perspective in their planning, in their strategies, and also in their rhetoric. So we'll be talking to Rory about that today. Rory was one of the proponents, the first proponents, the earliest proponents of the Indo-Pacific concept. So we'll be discussing with him what the concept is, what it is not, and what we should expect in the future. And as I said, Rory is my boss, so I'll thank you all to sit up straight and raise your hand if you have a question. No shouting out, class. Thanks very much. Let's get on to it. Hi, Rory. Thanks for joining us today. That's my pleasure, Chris. Now, uh, we're here to talk about the concept of the Indo-Pacific, which is essentially a concept that you've led with for quite a number of years that we're starting to see really come of its own, especially as at the weekend's Shangri-La Dialogue. I think if I had a dollar for every time I heard the word Indo-Pacific, I could probably retire quite comfortably. So what we might start off with, if we could just talk about what the concept is and actually what it isn't. So what is the Indo-Pacific concept in your view? 
So I think uh, the Indo-Pacific is much more than a slogan, uh, even if some people were playing Indo-Pacific bingo at the weekend at, at Shangri-La, but it is more than a slogan. It's two things. I think, firstly, the Indo-Pacific idea is really an objective way of understanding the new strategic system, the changing dynamics of our region, our maritime Asian region in many ways, based on the interconnections between what happens in the Pacific Ocean and what happens in the Indian Ocean, the links of strategic relationships, the links of energy supplies and economic links, and the way in which a range of countries are now beginning to look at this region as one big strategic picture in diplomatic forums uh, and other relationships. So there's that objective descriptor, if you like, the Indo-Pacific region is a strategic system. There's also, though, the idea that the Indo-Pacific is the basis for a strategy. And we're now hearing of a lot of countries wanting to develop an Indo-Pacific strategy. That is, in many ways, a kind of, I guess, uh, rallying cry for the equal sovereignty of nations, for moderating China's behaviour in the region. So there is this China dimension as well. But at the moment, just to, to wrap that up, I guess, the Indo-Pacific idea is very much in play. And it's a mistake to say this is simply uh, only uh, an objective description or only a strategy. It's both. It's a real duality. Right. So you, you've mentioned how it's it's related to, it's the maritime space. Uh, thinking of it in terms of the mental map, it's, it's the maritime space. And a lot of that maritime space is based on uh, energy resource, trade, and uh, essentially uh, sea lines of communication. Um, and you've mentioned China as well. And I think you've mentioned in the past, um, in some of your public presentations and your written work, that a lot of it is based on China's access to energy resources and the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, to a degree. And we also see China now having a permanent presence in the Indian Ocean and a, a base, for want of a better term, in Djibouti, right. um, which is East Africa and which is also the Persian Gulf. So why, why does the concept look at Indo-Pacific? Why isn't it, say, the Persian Gulf Pacific or, or East Africa Pacific? Why is it bound to the Indian Ocean? And if you look at some of the maps, they actually bound it to the west coast of India. That's a fascinating question. And I do think that one of the conceptual challenges around this idea is where do we draw the line? What's in the Indo-Pacific and what's out? Now, I think a, um, a smart response uh, from policymakers on that at the moment is not to be too prescriptive about the outer boundaries of the Indo-Pacific. It's a fluid region, quite literally. It's a maritime region. Yes, uh, its centre, its core, is very much in the sea lanes, particularly the sea lanes of Southeast Asia, uh, which incidentally is one reason why the South China Sea is going to remain everybody's business, uh, whether uh, any one country likes that or not. But as for the the western edge, the western limit of the Indo-Pacific, look, different countries do have different ideas at the moment. The Japanese uh, include Africa in their definition. Australia doesn't. Um, I think we have to be flexible about this, but with this kind of guiding principle, that is the Indo-Pacific is the Indo-Pacific, is a strategic system to the extent that the interests of major powers are engaged. So, yes, China's behaviour in Africa, particularly in uh, Eastern Africa and in the Gulf and the Middle East, um, has a kind of Indo-Pacific character to it, especially where it involves dependence on the sea lanes uh, to get energy back to China or to transport uh, the Chinese Navy uh, or Chinese forces to the Indian Ocean theatre. But 
sure, not every uh, geopolitical development in the region has an Indo-Pacific focus, just as uh, over many years, uh, every minor event in uh, the South Pacific or Southeast Asia wasn't necessarily part of the big Asia-Pacific picture. It's a work in progress. Mm -hmm. Now, you've mentioned, we've both mentioned China a number of times, and it's been mentioned previously that um, this is not an anti-China concept, um, but more as more as an effort to balance China's growing influence in the region. Um, I want to ask what the difference is between balancing another country's intention in their eyes seeing to work against their intention. So what's the difference between being anti-China and containing their influence? That's a, uh, a really good set of questions and I think it goes to the core of the issue which is um, where is China in this Indo-Pacific construct? Now I think in many ways China is actually the quintessential Indo-Pacific power. If it wasn't for China's growing dependence on the sea lanes, uh, China's growing dependence on energy imports going back to the mid-1990s, um, the growing uh, expansion and presence of the Chinese Navy in the Indian Ocean, Chinese investments in Africa, frankly the so-called Maritime Silk Road, which is China's initiative that is the Indo-Pacific with Chinese characteristics. If it wasn't for all of those things, there would be no Indo-Pacific. So in a sense, China's own interest and behaviour brought this about. Uh, having said that, when China looks at this idea, uh, partly because this is a concept uh, that perhaps is not made in Beijing, um, unlike, say, the Belt and Road, and partly because it, cha it is championed by countries like the United States, India, Japan, Australia, but now also countries that are not US allies, like Indonesia and France, or not, not US allies in Asia, because it's now being pursued by a diversity of countries, all of whom have their own um, clashes of interests with China, none of, none of whom wish to see a region dominated by China, um, China has a problem with this. Uh, of course, Indo, uh, Indo-Pacific isn't just about the rise of India, but from a Chinese point of view, perhaps they are seeing that side of it rather than the more objective point that it's China's presence in the Indian Ocean that is bringing about this way of viewing the region. If I just interrupt on a point that you just made there, so... Uh, and I will answer your question in a moment. Is, is there an assumption that, that China is looking to dominate the region? Well, I mean... Different people have different assumptions about that. I think we have to assume uh, that China is now looking to some kind of regional dominance, and that is a judgment um, that perhaps I wouldn't have made 10 or 15 years ago. Um, what's striking, though, is that the region where China is seeking some kind of preeminence is not, I think, any longer merely East Asia. Uh, now, I think that is a mistake on China's part. I think uh, building any kind of, um, I guess, quasi-imperial um, reach into the Indian Ocean is a big deal for any country and is possibly going to be overreach for China. Uh, but if you look at China's activities and behaviour, you know, the base in Djibouti, the fact that in my view the aircraft carriers uh, are not for the South China Sea, China already has islands in the South China Sea uh, from which it can project air power. I think the air aircraft carriers that China is building will be primarily seen in the Indian Ocean. So I think we have to, uh, as security thinkers, looking at, I guess, to some degree, worst-case scenarios, we have to assume that China is seeking to dominate the Indo-Pacific region. And that does uh, really bring about a very um, bracing set of judgments uh, and a bracing response from other nations. But to go back to your question, uh, and I should add that it's entirely 
up to China as to whether it wants to offer um, not only categorical reassurance, but I guess evidence that that is not the case, that it is not seeking a relationship of, um, of dominance in the region. Uh, and I think making it quite clear that there are and should be alternatives to the Belt and Road is one way where China could reassure, uh, reassure other countries to make it clear that investment and infrastructure and engagement need not purely be on China's terms. But to go finally to your question, Chris, about um, really about balancing containment and, and the rest of it, um, this is to some degree a matter of the, the use of terminology. Um, in my view, balancing is uh, a fairly natural and understandable reaction from a whole range of states, large and small, when there is not only a rising power that's being rather assertive, um, but that is also, I guess, demonstrating a pretty strong insensitivity to their interests in the region. I distinguish that very clearly from containment, which I see as involving a degree of economic strangulation that no one is seeking to inflict on China. And let's face it, uh, even if it was a desirable policy, which it's not, it would be an impo impossible policy. Uh, and last of all, on how do these ideas of balancing engagement and the rest connect with the Indo-Pacific? Well, in many ways, um, this is now the theatre that China's choosing to play in. Uh, China can choose, I, in my view, whether to play uh, a more engaged, more uh, multilateral, multipolar role in the region, or it can choose to take a more uh, unilateral China-centric approach. Which of those it does will, I think, largely determine how other countries respond and whether we see an Indo-Pacific region uh, headed more towards cooperation or what I fear, which is a region headed towards uh, competition, possibly even confrontation. You mentioned the word sensitivity, and if I can quote the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi from his presentation at the Shangri-La Dialogue on the weekend, he said, I firmly believe that Asia and the world will have a better future when India and China work together in trust and confidence sensitive to each other's interests. So that was when India and China yeah. act like that. So that's a, that's making a statement that they are not Absolutely. acting in that way right now. So, and you were talking about China and its sensitivity to the region. In your view, where is China not being sensitive to India's interests and what is it doing that may damage trust and confidence of China's uh, presence in the region? Well, I think up front, I'm quite comfortable with the idea that India and China are having a kind of a reset in their relations. I think that that's been, I guess, distorted by some commentators uh, to give the impression that somehow India is now moving uh, into China's orbit or alignment. Instead, I think they're trying to get beyond some very, very profound mistrust. Um, Xi Jinping had an opportunity, I think, three or four years ago to, um, to really engage India as a civilizational partner for China, as China rises and India rises together. Um, I think in many ways he squandered that opportunity. If you look at the, um, the submarine deployment, if you look at the border incursions, if you look at the various steps, including China's continued support for Pakistan um, in, in a military sense and more broadly, if you look at all the factors uh, as to why China has reinforced Indian mistrust of China, it's going to be very hard to unwind from that. And I, I Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The low point was reached with the Docklam confrontation uh, in the Himalayas last, last year. So in many ways, I think China and India are moving back from uh, not quite the brink, but from a really low point. Uh, and they both need this reset. But I don't think trust is going to enter the relationship anytime soon. And in many ways, I think this is a tactical uh, a tactical reset. Uh, a year or two from now, I suspect we're going to be back into a pretty tough place between those two countries. Mm. And bringing the US into the equation here, we just saw, I believe it was last Friday or late last week, that the US Pacific Command has renamed themselves the Indo-Pacific Command. Um, and they've also that's this is following on from their um, the defence and their national security strategy that had a very clear uh, focus on the Indo-Pacific. And I believe uh, General Mattis also said that um, the Indo-Pacific was their priority theatre of operations mm. as well at the, on the weekend at Shangri-La Dialogue. Um, how do you see uh, some of the other countries in the region responding to a stronger US military approach in the region? And how how do you see the approach to the Indo-Pacific from the Obama administration differing to the Trump administration's approach? So, um, look, for all of the problems with the Trump administration in the region, I think the the, uh, the pivot, if you like, towards uh, an Indo-Pacific framework uh, is a positive, and I think it's, it's here to stay, and I think it will outlive the Trump administration, incidentally. It also had precursors under the Obama administration. If you remember, even going back to, um, to George W. Bush, the United States has consistently tried to engage India uh, since the beginning of this century as a strategic partner. Uh, the, the pivot uh, under Obama had an Indo-Pacific flavour to some extent, even if it wasn't expressed that way, when you think about the role of Australia in the pivot, the fact that Australia is an Indo-Pacific country, uh, and Hillary Clinton herself, uh, when announcing uh, the developments there, the Force Posture Initiative, uh, when Obama announced the Marines in Darwin, in my view, that was all pretty Indo-Pacific in character, an ability to pivot between two oceans, a pivot within a pivot. Now, where things will go from here, I think a lot depends on how serious the United States is in following through on its big declarations, the national security strategy, uh, the uh, new defence strategy, indeed the Indo-Pacific strategy that is not published but we believe the administration is working on, and whether also it adds non-military legs to this engagement, because I do take the point that um, with the uncertainties about the way Trump behaves and sees things, uh, and with that sense that China is trying to create that there's a tempo of worsening confrontation between the US and just about everyone, uh, the US is really only going to prove that it's serious about the region if it can uh, reinvest in its diplomacy, in its uh, geoeconomic engagement, in its soft power engagement alongside the military peace. And that's one reason why I think it's so important that other countries in the region Japan, Australia, India, Indonesia, the rest the rest, um, are now shaping our own versions of what the Indo-Pacific looks like, setting our own terms, if you like, uh, for a shared strategy with the United States, and if necessary, um, holding the line somewhat uh, while the United States uh, really gets its house in order.
Mm. And before I really focus on how this affects and impacts Australia, um, just to continue the extra regional focus here, we've seen the French being very active uh, recently with um, President Macron's visit and his announcements and also on the weekend, um, the announcements at the Shangri-La Dialogue. Some might suggest that even at the dialogue on the weekend, they were the most strident in their criticisms of China and its approach to the Indo-Pacific and also its uh, its attempts to control maritime territory. What is the French interest in the Indo-Pacific given that they exist on the other side of the world and what can we expect to see from them in the future? Yeah, look, I think France is surprisingly important here. Um, I get the impression that, that indeed the French were, shall I say, the most frank uh, at the Shangri-La dialogue and expressing their, their views to China and, and to the rest about a rules-based order. Uh, but that is actually quite consistent with the position that uh, Macron has been developing. I and mean, his visit to Australia earlier this year where he unveiled the idea of nothing less than an Indo-Pacific axis uh, of India, France and Australia, uh, his strengthening of relations with India and the very balanced approach he's taken to China on his visit to Beijing earlier this year where he spoke very categorically against anything that might resemble hegemony. Um, France is really stepping up in the region. Now, of course, the question is, how serious are they? Can they follow through? Uh, you know, are these delusions of grandeur? Is this a, a global power of times past um, briefly reasserting itself? I don't think so. I think, I think France is looking to engage very much in a spirit of partnership um, with countries like India, Australia, uh, even Japan to some degree. And I think it does make sense uh, both for France that's looking at itself as a champion of liberal values internationally with others, with Germany, for example, uh, with Australia, with Canada, with the UK to some extent, and with, I guess, the better angels of the United States uh, during this difficult time of the Trump era. But this will only be effective to the extent that France can... Uh, I guess, sustain those partnerships and can really follow through on its engagement in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific, where it's important to remember France is a resident power with territories in both oceans, indeed with a large part of its, um, of its exclusive economic zone in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific. Are, are there large economic interests, as in, as in uh, are there, there great challenges to... If you look at France's involvement in Africa, a lot of their uranium, which powers a lot of their, their uh, domestic energy production, comes from Africa. So they have a direct economic interest and they could be harmed quite seriously if those interests uh, were to work against them in Africa. Do they have the same strong economic interests in the Indo-Pacific? So they, it's an interesting question. Can they afford to lose, that's right. <laughs> to lose the region? Look, I think France looks at the region as part of the... The, this new global dynamic of a rules-based order being challenged by, frankly, some revisionism. Uh, and I think France recognises rightly that the liberal democracies either rise or fall together. But I would also note at a more pragmatic level that the French defence industry is heavily in invested in this region. Uh, indeed, India and Australia are really now France's top two, if you like, defence export markets. So there is a, a hard edge to that as well. But it's a maritime power, the principles of freedom of navigation uh, that also I think the UK is trying to reassert are a real thing in France. Uh, apart from anything else, you know, France maintains its own nuclear deterrent at sea um, somewhere. So 
Look, I think we have to look at this as part of the puzzle uh, and part of the solution. But of course, no one's pretending that France alone is going to save the day from instability or hegemony in the Indo-Pacific. Mm. And just before I move on to Australia's interest, we're talking about economics. You tweeted today, actually, that the APEC meeting in Papua New Guinea will be China's Indo-Pacific coming out party. What do you mean by that and what are you expecting? Well, I guess it'll be China's South Pacific coming out party. Um, uh, if not in the broader Indo-Pacific. I mean, I think that when we look to APEC towards the end of this year in Port Moresby, uh, we're going to have an extraordinary spectacle. Um, you know, not only, I'm sure, there'll be some fantastic cultural presentations that PNG will put on, uh, and I think a lot of effort has gone into the security and the infrastructure and so forth, but also we will have the spectacle of probably Donald Trump coming to the South Pacific, but also Xi Jinping. And I think there uh, we could well see a crystallisation of what's been happening for some years now, which is China building its investment, building its influence, and I think also quietly building a um, potential security footprint in the South Pacific. So my my um, anticipation is that is that the Chinese leadership will bring some major um, geoeconomic gifts to PNG. Um, these could potentially have strings attached in the long run. And for a country like Australia, which has been so accustomed to seeing the South Pacific as its backyard and as the place where uh, there are expectations on us as a partner and a provider, but also where we can exert uh, really great influence, those days are going to be um, potentially over or at least fundamentally challenged. So let's, let's watch this space. And well, just on, let's watch that space right now. What are the opportunities and risks for Australia, given that we are sitting right astride, along with some of our neighbours, the Indo-Pacific, this focus not just from China, but from the US, from France and, and other countries? Well, what should we expect and, and uh, what should we take advantage of? Well, let's sort of take it back to the start for a moment, and that is that while it's been very, very heartening to see, um, I guess, a bandwagon of Indo-Pacific rhetoric uh, and thinking in recent months, um, Australia is one of the first countries, indeed the first country, to have formally declared this to be its region of strategic interest, going back to our Defence White Paper in, in 2013. So Australia, I guess, saw this coming to some extent. Perhaps we've been surprised at how quickly such a wide range of countries have, have got on board, but we do all have somewhat uh, different definitions of the region. That's fine. Um, Australia now has the opportunity to engage with a whole range of countries, not only the Quad members, uh, you know, the United States, Japan and India, but also with our Southeast Asian friends, with Indonesia in particular, that's showing, I think, some leadership on this issue. Australia can serve, I guess, as a kind of hub and convener for new cooperative arrangements, um, small groups of countries doing security cooperation or dialogue. Australia also, I guess, has the potential to now lead small groups, small caucuses in regional forums like the East Asia Summit uh, to push this much more inclusive uh, view of the region. And most importantly, a view of a region that is based on the sovereign equality of nations, where middle powers like Australia have, if you like, just as much say as uh, the large and the rising powers. So I think this is a pretty fruitful time for Australia. The big challenge in all of that, of course, is that we overextend, overstretch 
our resources. Uh, that was bad enough in the old days of the Asia-Pacific, where we somehow thought we could make a difference uh, in North Asia. Uh, it's not impossible for us to contribute to coalitions that make a difference in, say, the Indian Ocean, but Australia will also have to be uh, very active in the way it builds partnerships with others and also quite discriminating in the way it deploys its own resources. So ironically, in this expansive Indo-Pacific region, we can and should see a, um, a doubling down, for example, on Australia's provision of aid and development to the South Pacific, where we can really make a difference as part of a wider regional web of uh, security and geoeconomic cooperation to ensure balance. And is Australia's geography of, of being an Indo-Pacific nation, is that an advantage to us or is, is that a challenge? Well, I think our geography, it, it is what it is, as they say. Uh, we are an Indo-Pacific power, a two-ocean, indeed a three-ocean power. So interestingly is Indonesia. So there's an opportunity for us to work much more closely with others, taking advantage of uh, some of those benefits of our geography. For instance, the fact that Australia has, I think, a pretty exceptional ability to monitor what's happening in the sea lanes, uh, the Northeast Indian Ocean, Southeast Asia and so forth, and to share that data with a wider range of friends as a kind of um, contribution to a common effort. And just lastly, given that you've been um, expounding this concept since 2012, you must be quite satisfied to see the whole region and the whole world essentially adopt the concept. Well, I wouldn't quite take it that far, but I look, I, it, it's been um, the work of, I guess, a number of analysts, think tanks, academics, officials to start revisiting the region in this way. And I did play, I guess, an active role in the early phases of persuading policymakers in Australia to see the region in this way. So look, it is, it is satisfying to see um, a recognition that we're in probably, I'd say, the second phase of a very long Indo-Pacific game. And it will be interesting, I guess, in years to come to see whether any of these regional forums take on an Indo-Pacific name. But in the end, it doesn't matter what we call the region. It's uh, whether, in fact, countries are acting on their, um, on, on their policy commitments, acting in a more joined-up Indo-Pacific way that will determine whether uh, the region's future is one of, uh, I guess, fragmentation or one of some kind of cohesive response to disruptive forces. We live in interesting times. Professor Maury Medgar, thanks very much for joining Thank us Thank you today. very much, Chris. There you have it, folks. That is the Indo-Pacific, according to Professor Rory Medcalf. It is obviously a huge issue that isn't just a regional issue. It's not just an Australian issue. It's a global issue. When you see powers like France, India, China, Japan and the US all interested in the same patch of ground, you know that there is going to be a lot to watch here for a long time. We're pretty keen to hear from you on what you think. You know, is it a workable concept? Is, is it not defined clearly enough? Is it actually a counter-China policy? Very keen to hear from you. Again, if you want to drop us a line, do so at podcast at policyforum.net, apps Policy Forum on Twitter, and on Facebook, Asia Pacific Policy Society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we look forward to speaking to you again in two weeks.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.